This is the Shenandoah Down Under podcast. In the final days of the American Civil War, the CSS Shenandoah set out on an epic year-long secret mission. Join your Australian hosts, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien, as they follow the last Confederate cruiser on its quest to find and sink the Yankee whaling fleet, wherever on the high sea they may find them. Hello, and this is Shenandoah Down Under, or Confederate Pirates Save the Whales, with Robin Mob, Robert Love, and Michael O'Brien. I'm Rob. And I'm Mob. Good good morning, Rob. And, or is it good afternoon? It's good afternoon here. <laughs> and um, today, we would like to uh, introduce a, a very special guest uh, to help us through the Pacific part of the Shenandoah's campaign. And uh, we are very privileged and happy to have Dr. Justin Vance as a guest on our program. And Justin is Associate Professor of History and Interim Dean for Hawaii Pacific University's Military Campus Programs. Welcome to Shenandoah Down Under, Justin. Thank you very much. So we met Justin uh, in the flesh a few months ago at the conference about the CSS Shenandoah here in Australia. And Justin, was that your first visit to Australia? That was my first time to Australia. I hope you had a uh, a good time. I understand that some people from the Civil War Roundtable had taken you to see some very interesting sights. Yeah, I had an awesome time. Oh, that's that's terrific. Did you get to see a koala? <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. That... Uh, yes, we're, we're working on a theory that the crew of the Shenandoah must have got to hold a, a koala at some point, but they, they just neglected to mention it in their, in their published writings. But, uh, yeah, I yeah. bet they did. <laughs> so, uh, Justin, you've been very busy, as far as I can see, uh, in Hawaii over the last few weeks with some commemorations for uh, the, the Civil War. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the things you've been doing? That's right. So you mentioned my day job. Uh, I'm also uh, president of the Hawaii Civil War Roundtable. And so I've helped to organize uh, many events here um, during the 150th uh, anniversary, um, including uh, recently we just commemorated Lee's surrender on uh, April 9th. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we pretty much had to split um... Uh, that into because there was just so much happening for the Shenandoah and the Civil War that we pretty much had to split that into two episodes. So we're actually beginning to run a run a little bit late. But um, so you, you had a commemoration of the the surrender. Uh, the September 9th one was the main one um, that we. Or I mean, April 9th was the main one that we organized recently, and uh, we actually coordinated that with the um, Our Lady. Uh, of Peace Cathedral, which is the oldest Catholic church in the Hawaiian Islands, built in 1843. And uh, so they did the bell ringing for us, uh, uh, which is the traditional way to, to sound the end of the war across the country here. Mm. And uh, they were also very excited about it because there was a Civil War veteran who came to Hawaii after the war uh, who worked 43 years at the leper colony in the Hawaiian Islands um, helping people. And they're starting a... Uh, a campaign uh, to make him a saint uh, oh, in the wow. church. And so and he's a Civil War veteran. His name's Joseph Dutton, and he was a uh, captain in the Union, mm-hmm. Union Army. So, so Justin, you are uh, – one of your areas of interest and expertise is how the Civil War impacted 
Hawaii and the Pacific area, and uh, we were very interested in your presentation to learn that there were a number of uh, Hawaiians that served. That's correct. Uh, we know of at least 119 people born in Hawaii that served in the Union and the Confederacy, including 10 on board the Shenandoah. But um, again, you, you brought up at the uh, the conference that um, uh, pretty much all of those people can be assumed to have served under under false names or or, or at least anglicised names. And I believe there was a bit of a, a smoking gun, as it were, because uh, one of them was was Bill Bill Williams or something like that. That's right. <laughs> uh, the vast so the majority, especially uh, all those that were Hawaiian. 80, 90 percent of them served under um, nom de guerre, right? Uh, yeah. Names of war. Yes, yeah. Quite literally, nom, nom de guerre, yes. Exactly. Mm. I think a uh, very interesting thing that I learned in your presentation at the conference, Justin, was the, in fact, severe impact that the Civil War had on Hawaii. It's not something that would immediately come to mind that an island in the middle of the Pacific would be impacted in the way it was. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, about that? That's right. Uh, so although Hawaiians an independent kingdom from 1820 to 1861 for over 40 years, it had been culturally and economically tied to the United States, especially New England, um, because of the whaling fleet and then later San Francisco um, after the 1849 gold rush. And so... Uh, Hawaii uh, felt a lot of uh, a lot of impacts. Uh, probably the strongest one was economic, um, with the whaling fleet uh, taking a huge hit, as well as shipping taking a hit, as well as uh, their sugar exports rose during the war fifteen hundred percent. Wow! So the the whaling ships presumably uh, left New England, and they'd have to go an awful long way round uh, either the Cape or uh, round the Horn to get to Hawaii, and was the, uh, Hawaii like a jumping-off point to then go up into the whaling grounds? Uh, that's right. Hawaii, uh, so they, they came around Cape Horn. It, it, it could take four to six months, and so so once they were here, they would stay for several years, and Hawaii was their home port in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. And, does it, and, and that also meant that uh, not only did they base themselves there, but it also meant that you'd get a lot of Hawaiians serving as crews on board these, these ships. That's right. Uh, so not only were they who was available, but they were, they were, they were great seafarers. Mm-hmm. And did, did they uh, cope well with going up into the really cold climbs if they were from, the, <laughs> from beautiful Hawaii? Uh, yeah, that I don't know. Uh, uh, I, I know I do when I go into the cold climates, but, uh, I get, I, it's tough to handle, but, uh, the, there were Hawaiians, uh, going all over the world at this point. Mm-hmm. And they, so they were, they were in the American Northwest. They were on the whaling ships. They were in New England. Um, mm-hmm. and I'm sure there were many more places than that. So when the Shenandoah came into Ponape, there were four ships uh, in the harbour there, and three of them were American flagged, and one of them uh, was allegedly Hawaiian flagged, but I understand the Shenandoah uh, didn't really believe that. Were there lots of Hawaiian flagged ships at this time? 
Uh, there would have been a good number. Um, you know, the, there were hundreds of New England whaling ships um, using Hawaii, and uh, mo- they were mostly American flagged um, still. Mm-hmm. Um, but but some were owned by Hawaiians, um, you know, businessmen in Hawaii, or they may have been American or other uh, European descended, but now they're Hawaiian subjects and they own businesses in Hawaii. So there were some ships like that, and there were some ships that had changed their registry, you know, early in the war um, to help avoid this kind of thing. Yeah, and uh, apparently that was one of the ships that was in Ponapay Harbor. With, had uh, the, the, the captain, I think, swore blind that the ship had been uh, signed over to Hawaii, but he didn't have any of the paperwork. Yeah, there were four. Uh, there are four ships uh, in Pompeii on April first when the Shenandoah pulls in. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Edward Carey, uh, the Pearl, and the Hector uh, were the three American flagships. The Harvest was the Hawaiian flagship. Um, and uh, I, um, I think the evidence is pretty clear um, that it was Hawaiian. It, it was flying Hawaiian flag, and I think there was. Enough evidence for Waddell um, um, to to have uh, accepted it as as Hawaiian. Right. Um, he he. However, you know there there is. I, I think no matter how much evidence they gave him that day, he would have still said it was an American ship. But I think there was enough there for him to claim fog of war, which is what happened, and 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 what's still not con- conclusive in most people's minds. Well, I, I guess, I guess with with four ships there, he he really wouldn't have wanted to leave any ship available to to then head off and um, and spread the word further north. So, um, yes, yeah, so I think I think whoever was in Ponape when Waddell arrived was 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 going to get sunk. Yeah, that is. Uh, so there's nothing in writing um, that supports that, but that is. Uh... That is a, probably a pretty safe assumption. <laughs> so uh, I remember in your, your presentation, Justin, you talked about uh, the impact on Ponapay of leaving behind these uh, these whaler crew because there was quite a few of them, wasn't there? Uh, <clears throat> that's right. There was uh, was over a hundred, mm-hmm. about one hundred and twenty. And they were essentially marooned on the island. There was a few that joined the crew of the Shenandoah, and the rest were marooned. Um, and those that were left behind caused uh, a disruption of internal politics between the the, the rival chiefs on the island. Mm-hmm. Um, according to the missionaries on the island, because um, these were missionary, this was a wing of the missionaries who had um, came there from the Hawaiian uh, mission. Um, you know, originally from New England, but finished their task in Hawaii and then went out to other Pacific islands. And according to those missionaries, there was chaos and drunken revelry between April 13th and September 28th, which was the time frame that these uh, gentlemen are on the island. And then the captain of the, I believe he's the captain of the harvest, uh, he stays on the island permanently. Oh, so so he he liked the look of the place and uh, decided to make it his home. Uh, he settled down, uh, had a family, and uh, and his descendants still live there to this day. And they have been interviewed um, by uh, by an archaeologist that did a study there uh, about two thousand one. 
Oh, fantastic. So, um, I, I can imagine that having 130 sailors, 120, 130 sailors on your island with nothing to do would, would, would lead to, to, to significant disruption. Um, right. So, so how, how were they eventually rescued? Uh, so uh, word uh, reached Honolulu on August 10th that uh, the sailors had been marooned there. And uh, the Hawaiian government, uh, the king, uh, immediately dispatched a ship um, named after him called the Kamehameha V. Okay. And uh, by late August, they had sailed down there, um, picked up the the marooned sailors, which were almost all Hawaiian, uh, because during the Civil War, even a larger number of the crews were Hawaiian, so even on these American ships. Mm-hmm. And the Kamehameha V, uh, picked up 98 officers and men and uh, pulled back into uh, Honolulu Harbor on September 28, 1865. Okay, yeah, I, I guess that, that does make sense because, of course, the, the American crews would have been much more likely to have uh, to have been fighting in the war, I, I guess, than the, than the right. Hawaiian crews. Yeah. Right. I, I should say they picked up the... They picked up the maroon sailors on September 28th, and they re- they made they returned to Honolulu November 20th. Oh, that's that, that's quite a long way to, time to be to be out of action. So presumably, you know, during, yeah. during this time, you're you're earning absolutely no money. And um... oh, it was it was devastating. Uh, it was devastating for the the ship owners, the ship captains, and the and and the whole economy of Hawaii. Obviously, the sailors, but also. The, um, you know, Hawaii's economy is providing the supplies. Um, they're providing banking services. They're pro- providing um, recreation and uh, for the sailors. So all these things um, would have stopped flowing. Yeah, and I think um, it's recorded that they took over a hundred thousand dollars of value out of the four ships they captured just in Ponape. And I guess that's uh, $100,000 that doesn't get spent in the uh, economy anywhere. That's correct. And the other thing that uh, that hurts, of course, is uh, this is where the Shenandoah got the information it needed to find the rest of the whaling fleet. So they took the, most, the, the latest and greatest whaling charts and maps that these ships were carrying uh, ah. for the whale season. And that helped them track down, right, the next 20 whalers that they capture in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. And I understand that they took on a couple of uh, crew from these whalers as well, who probably could have given them very privileged information. That's correct. And including the second mate of one of the ships. Um, so not only, you know, crew, but actually one of the navigators. Mm-hmm. And was he a, a Hawaiian, do you know? Uh, he was not. Uh, his name was Charles Hamitel, and mm-hmm. he was not Hawaiian by descent. Uh, many of the officers were still often American, even on the uh, uh, Hawaiian-owned ships. But he was the first mate of the Harvest, so he was from the Hawaiian flagship. Uh-huh. So uh, the, the Shenandoah's sojourn in uh, Ponape was about uh, two weeks or nearly nearly two weeks. Um, there was one interesting note where some of the officers went off to see the the ruins 
at the other side of the island. Do you know anything about those? Uh, you know, I don't have, I, I didn't present about that, but I have uh, heard that, yes. Yeah, apparently uh, there'd, there'd been, uh, there are ancient ruins on the island that had been there for uh, over a thousand years. That they, so they even got to do a little bit of sightseeing, which... Uh, yeah, it is an old civilization. So I hope to make it there one day to check out the site where this happened. And I would actually like to see um, some sort of uh, commemoration or marker put there by the U.S. You know, the, mm -hmm. the U.S. government or the National Park Service um, uh, to commemorate this sort of one of the farthest Western events of the war. Sure, I mean we we finally had a plaque put in Melbourne, didn't we? Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. But, but Mayor Michael was there when it was unveiled. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's great. So, to your knowledge, there isn't any uh, any marking or commemoration or anything in in Pohnpei at at the moment. That's my understanding. Um, there, there's none, and so that's something I would like to work with the National Park Service uh, about in the future. Well, it could even be the case where there could be a plaque if there was the grave of the uh, of the uh, any of the people that served. Oh no, I guess they were whalers, weren't they? They wouldn't do a they wouldn't do a marking for them. Yeah, probably not. Um, but it is. Uh, I have been referring to it as the Battle of Pompeii. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you know, uh, it's not necessarily a traditional battle, but uh, if you were there, uh, you wouldn't have been very happy. <laughs> well, I think they were very excited about the idea of seeing four ships, and I think uh, with Mr. Whittle's uh, previous entries going on about the monotony and the lack of uh, ships to capture and so on, they must have been very excited to see four ships as they came in that day. Yeah. A couple of specifics here. Um, I I had said Charles Hamill, Hamittal was the, the second mate who signed on. Mm -hmm. um, uh, captain Eldridge, who was the captain of the harvest, actually accused Hamill of giving the Confederates too much information but he wasn't actually one that signed on it was actually uh second mate manning um who would eventually sign on um and, uh, with the shenandoah and he that was from a later capture though um uh, the ship called the abigail um and he mm -hmm. signed on uh so that then they had the charts they had a couple crew members and eventually they had this second mate from another another ship captured later that was the Abigail on June 12th. So, and eventually they caught a lot more whalers. Yes, they went on to catch about 20 more whalers. So uh, if Mr. Hamertel had uh, volunteered all this information and then he stayed back on the island with the other 100, and 100 or so castaways, that must have been a very uncomfortable time for him. Well, here's the other interesting side story about uh, about the whole thing. Um, Charles H Hamidel actually left the island uh, with three other officers and a cooper, who's like a ship repair person. Mm -hmm. uh, they set out for Guam in the, the the only whale boat that the Shenandoah had left behind, and they traveled 850 miles in the whale boat. Um, from Pompeii to Guam. And do you know what so, the purpose of that journey was? Uh, well, I mean, um, 
probably he wasn't very comfortable on the island, number one, as you <laughs> yeah. mentioned. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing is, is he's trying to either, uh, you know, get get everybody rescued uh, and or, um, you know, warn people about the Shenandoah. Oh, so he may have had a, a touch of uh, being guilty about everything he did tell them, perhaps. Yeah, and he may have just been scared because um, he didn't sign on with the Shenandoah. So Eldridge could have been mistaken or he might have been frightened. But they make it to Guam, and actually the Guam is a Spanish colony at the time. The mm-hmm. governor of Guam act- also sends a rescue ship, um, but it arrives after the Kamehameha the Fifth, so everybody's already gone. Oh, well, it's it's good to see that uh, everybody's trying to do their bit, though. Yeah. Um, yep. I think that's the law of the sea. You know, everyone pitches in. And in fact, uh, I understand that that is possibly why they got to capture, the, uh, and we're going a bit ahead of ourselves, but they captured 10 ships in one day up in the Arctic, and I think one of them was put on fire, and the other ships all came up very quickly to see what was going on. And that might have, been, again, been the law of the sea, coming in to, to rescue your mates who are obviously in trouble. Mm. Well, especially especially up in the Arctic. Um, that, do you know, Justin? Was there was there any great tradition of Hawaiian sailors? I mean, I I know um, Whittle described the outriggers on their canoes, but was there any great tradition of the Hawaiian sailors going up towards the Arctic um, historically, or was that something that that really started with 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 the whaling fleets going up there? Uh, yeah, no, I don't I don't know if. Hawaiians going to the Arctic, of course, they had the long voyaging canoes um, that would travel across Polynesia, but uh, that really wasn't happening at the time the Europeans came, and so um, Hawaiians were still knew the ocean well, but uh, it was when they started signing on with European and American ships that they uh, started this tradition of sailing again. Uh, long distances, and uh, at that point, then they would have been going back and forth to China, back and forth to the Northwest, and back and forth to New England. And then, of course, uh, you know, whales, uh, whale hunting first occurred in the Atlantic, and then the South Pacific, and then finally to the North Pacific, uh, as whales were running out at the different locations yeah. mm-hmm. from old fishing. Yeah, yeah, it's, it certainly yeah. Did, does sound like um, they had to go to, to more and more. You know, distant and, and desolate parts of the of the earth to find their whales, and um, and and that's continuing to the, to the, to this day. Uh, I, I saw a documentary the other day about Arctic um, Arctic fishing, and it, it looked absolutely grim. Yeah, it looks very cold. <laughs> Hard work. So, Justin, we've we've only got a few minutes to go. Can you tell us a bit about uh, what happened to Hawaii? after the Civil War? Because, of course, now it's an American state. Back then it was a kingdom. Uh, what was the Civil War's impact on how Hawaii changed in the, the later 19th century? Well, it was really big impact because... Uh, so Hawaiian sugar industry got its start during the war, which uh, then replaced the whaling industry that had been virtually destroyed. And uh, sugar became the number one piece of the economy in Hawaii until the 1960s, so for the next 100 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, that brought in the need for plantation sugar plantation labor. And Hawaii became one of the most diverse places on earth because of that, um, bringing in uh, workers from 
Portugal and other parts of Europe, as well, of course, with China, Japan, uh, Philippines, Korea, Okinawa. Mm -hmm. So uh, Hawaii's uh, very diverse, and so you know the Civil War is uh, part of the reasons for that. Now, now, was the increase in sugar production was that to replace sugar that the North had previously been sourcing from from the South? Do you, do you know? That's right. So initially, uh, during the war, um, uh, the the North couldn't get sugar from the South anymore, and so Hawaii started exporting a, a sugar. Um, to replace that. And then after the war, uh, Hawaii is a great place to grow sugar. And so the sugar industry continued to boom. And uh, Hawaii signed a reciprocity treaty with the United States, um, which uh, let Hawaii import its sugar tax-free and gave the United States um, <clears throat> usage of Pearl Harbor. Okay, okay. Mm. So the sugar then is related to uh, the where the United States starts to have greater political interest in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. um, and then ultimately, uh, strategic interests, the overriding factor for annexation, right? Uh, Hawaii is a very strategic location militarily. Oh, mm -hmm. yes, clearly. Um, now, for, forgive my, my ignorance, but when actually did Hawaii become a state of the U.S.? Um, so it was in, uh, well, it was in 1876 when that treaty took place. Um, to give uh, the U.S. rights to Pearl Harbor, um, but then it, um, it was and in 1893 the kingdom was overthrown, but the United States government was not directly involved in that, um, and uh, the, the Republic of Hawaii was set up, and then it was 1898, um, sort of as part of the Spanish-American War events, um, when the United States um, defeats Spain and the war um, inherits the Philippines and Guam, and then suddenly it makes really good sense to annex Hawaii. And so it's 1898 when Hawaii is annexed and becomes part of the United States. Yeah, I, I, I was again, I, I was I was amazed that, that, that Spain actually had a, a Pacific had Pacific colonies. I mean, it, it's it's um, I, I'm finding it incredible following the the story of the Shenandoah through through the world that it sort of. Um, accesses so so many other so many other stories it, it, it's really um really a story that's got everything in it yeah the story of the shenandoah really connects the american history to world history yeah. and uh and even to australian history as we're we're, we're tying in yeah we're tying uh, in with it was, it, it was really neat to see all the sites in australia uh that had to do with the shenandoah and then also learn about the 42 sailors um, mm. who Barry uh, Crompton had helped identify, right, and put together something on, mm. uh, yeah. who enlisted on the Shenandoah, the 42 Australians. Yep. And uh, we, we had uh, a very good chat with uh, Barry uh, a couple of weeks ago where he talked about some of them, and uh, we uh, hopefully uh, will have Barry back again at some other time because uh, he's he's got so much more that he can tell us about uh, what happened in, in in Australia. Uh, Justin, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today, um, talking about a, an aspect of uh, the Civil War and American history that's not something that we've really uh, covered before. We've, we've come across this part of the journey of the Shenandoah, and uh, we really appreciate uh, you being able to share this with us. Um, now, now, Justin, do, do you know anybody in the, the university? Presumably, there's, there's a university in uh, in Alaska. Do, do you know anybody who might know about the uh, the, the voyage? 
the Shenandoah's uh, impact on Alaska? Ah, <laughs> uh, gosh, uh, I don't have a can, I don't have a contact there about it. I know that the National Park Service uh, they used to only have the 48 states. Uh, in their database and, uh, part, part of my research helped them decide they needed to add Hawaii and I, and I noticed they added Alaska at the same time. Um, so I'm sure there's somebody up there or, uh, at least somebody who could talk about it. Okay. Well, thank you for that tip and we'll, we'll, we'll have to try and track them down. Yes. All right. Okay, well, um, oh, look, this uh, time time has flown, and uh, yeah, we, we, we've got to the end of our, our episode. So, again, I would like to thank you very much indeed, Justin, for uh, agreeing to appear on our podcast. Um, we've, we've had a couple of um, uh, great, you know, enormous uh, historical enthusiasts on the program, but I, I have to say that you are our, our first actual uh, practice historian. So I guess it um, just remains to say that this has been... Um, Shenandoah Down Under or Confederate Pirates Save the Whales or with a Robin Mob, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien and Justin Vance. So thank you very much again, Justin. And it's ahoy from me. And tell thank you aloha. <laughs> and aloha. Thank you. aloha. Aloha from Justin. Thank you very much. Great. Okay. Bye-bye.